All right. Good morning again. So uh, I was going to show you a, a little uh, math scenario video that I done, and it's easier just to walk you through it. So if we gather here on Sunday mornings and we uh, call this time our church gathering, our fellowship, you hear the word, we pray, we sing, we do lots of things. And all of that time you can get into, I'll be generous and say an hour and a half. We don't usually go that long, but let's just say an hour and a half. And if you look at the uh, span of your week, I believe there's 172 hours in a week. Does that sound close, roughly about right? All right. Well, if that's not good math, you can do it later. Regardless, it's somewhere in that neighborhood. And if you do that and then divide that, the percentage of time that you spend engaging in the family of God is less than 1% of your life. Yes? So the question is, how can 1% of your life wield any power if you don't allow it to be more than 1% of your life. And so this morning we're going to pick up as we've been walking through Acts 15 for quite a while. It's been its own series, Acts 15. And I just want to remind you where we were at. And this was sort of the resolution, the heart of what all of the elements that we brought together was this. We talked about flesh and signs and the spirit and then the covenant and the new covenant and new man, new being, and all of the divisions that were made between Jew and Gentile, neither slave nor free, male, female, all of that is broken down in Christ, in the new covenant. So all those that are in Christ, that little dotted red line is the Holy Spirit. That's your way in. By faith, you are called God's people. And you receive all of the blessings of covenant relationship with him. And there's some false teaching around that that can kind of get us sidetracked and we get confused sometimes. But we're moving this morning uh, towards how does that become more than 1% of your life? Because it ought to be. And so uh, forgive this if it's not helpful to you. I want to try and draw a diagram because some people are visual learners and that's helpful. So that circle still is being in Christ. And so this morning I want to tell you that your peace with God is because you are in Christ, right? And your peace with one another is because you are in Christ, and your participation in God is because of being in Christ. And your participation with one another is, guess what? Because of, yeah, being in Christ. Guess what? And you are supposed to practice these things. Not just being in uh, commun uh, communion with God, but also being in communion with one another. That's why we're saved into a people. God's people. That's the church. And so this morning, we're moving this concept forward towards how do we get God's word and God's authority and God's people to be something that we apply all the way through our lives. And so this morning we get the very first New Testament scripture in the New Testament being used to speak to the people of the church. And so I, I want you to recognize just out of the gate, we are Luma Bible Church. We say that God's word is authoritative, not just for some of life, not just for parts of life, but for all of life. And so this applies not to a situation, but to a people. It's, it's not a, a what well, have you get in this kind of situation, just go ahead and flip over to Ecclesiastes, and here's what you can do. God's word is written to his people, and so it applies to a people, not to a situation. And so that is the people that are called the members of God's household. That's what 1 Timothy says, that we are members of God's household, that we participate in God through his spirit, and we participate with one another, and that's why we're called Christian. And all of this is not properly called your identity, but your being. Your being is a better way to think about this. You are a new being in Christ as a result of a new birth that's brought, around, uh, brought about by the Spirit. And so we are to submit our lives in totality 
to the authority of God's word so that we can appropriately be called the people of God. And so this is a, a triune salvation. We are saved to be uh, fellowshipping with one another in mind, soul, and body. So God's word is sufficient to help us do this. And I, I just happen to like giving characterizations or illustrations that are helpful to me. It's sort of like we are on a nice cruise ship, right? And a big, heavy, nice cruise ship that's carrying lots of people can be anchored in to any certain depth so long as they drop the anchor and it goes down to the, the, the ocean floor. And it can keep a, a giant ship in the same spot, regardless of what kind of waves and whatever the storm is happening, right? An anchor is important that we drop it outside and it gets to the, the bottom. It gets to the depth of the water that we're in. But what happens for us is that we take a little kiddie pool on deck and we drop the anchor of God's word into this little kiddie pool and it smashes it, right? And we call that our spiritual life, right? That, that less than 1% of your life that you're here participating in, fellowshipping with one another, fellowshipping in God's word. You drop that anchor into the kiddie pool and call it sufficient. And so I want to call us away from that this morning. In fact, God's word is going to call us away from that this morning. So we'll be reading this morning through Acts 15. We're going to just rewind just for a few verses. I know I promised we'd be moving on, and we are. But I rewound a few verses just to give us context. We'll go through verse 35 this morning, talking about anchor deep. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would use your words to exhort us to action, exhort us to life, to pursue you with wholeness in the midst of an ocean that's vast. And I just pray that you would help me to convey the, um, what is the breadth and the depth and the height of what you can do through a people that are submitted to you. And that submit their lives to your lordship and your word. And so, Father, I just ask that you would keep me from error this morning, that you would open all of our hearts and ears to hear you and our eyes to see you. We thank you for your word that you've given us, that you would entrust your people to be obedient. So fill us with your spirit that we can do that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone say amen. All right, I'm going to read all the way through the text this morning, and then we'll take it just piece by piece. So starting in verse 22, are you with me? Okay, close enough. Joe's with me. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. 
So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after, and after they had spent some time, and they, uh, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now, if you uh, are an astute person or you're reading in a different translation, you might have noticed there's no verse 34. That's because verse 34 is not included in all the manuscripts. And it just says parenthetically, but it seemed good to Silas to stay. So he remained in Antioch, and that becomes important moving forward. But um, that is uh, our text for the morning. And so let's just take it uh, piece by piece and see what the Lord would want to teach us. So it seemed, it seemed good to the apostles and the, uh, the brothers there that they had come to a, a consensus about what God wants for his people. And so they, they, uh, they send the letter and other men to go and instruct the, the church in Antioch about what God has revealed to the believers altogether. And so this is uh, an indication for us that believers need instruction, right? We need to know what it is that God wants for our lives. Just because we have the Spirit in our lives, it's not like the Matrix where suddenly like we're downloaded with everything and suddenly we know everything that we should do in every possible situation. So the Spirit is sufficient to help us to follow God's Word. It's, it's, it's certainly the, the Spirit that inspires God's Word, but we also need instruction from others. And so they're actively looking now to God's truth, and to apply those truths to their whole lives in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And so they're, they're going down to build up this church to maturity, towards maturity. And so they're going to hear God's word with the intent to obey. Verse, 20, uh, verse 25 is, is sort of connected with verse 24. It says, it, has come, they, they had, it seemed good to them because they had come to one accord to choose men and to send them to you with beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives. They, why is it that they choose to send not just anybody, not just the people that showed up the most, had the best attendance. They, they wanted to send the ones who were strongest. And they measured the ones who were strongest by those who had, what, entered danger, who were willing to risk something of themselves to hold fast to, to the gospel, to, to hold fast to God's word. That's what made them, quote unquote, leading men. They're worthy of the task to deliver and protect the message, the message that has been delivered to the saints through the Holy Spirit. So consider the implications of what someone who is uh, not going to do that, who's, who's not going to uh, risk anything for uh, the sake of the Word of God. They have to put God's Word above their own honor, above their own livelihood, above everything else. God's Word has to reign uh, supreme over all of those things. And so where could you or would you say in your life that you would be somebody that has risked danger for the Word of God? The people who carry truth in the midst of danger and hostility are the ones who are primarily at risk. Verse 27 says, They sent, therefore, Judas and Silas. Let me get back to it just so we're all on the same page. There we go. There were men who had uh, risked their lives, Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. And uh, verse 28, for it has seemed good uh, to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So verse 24 and verse 27 are, are set in, in, in contrast to one another. There was people that had come down who had not risked anything. 
that they had come and they delivered a message, it says, that unsettled your minds, that, that had, had caused you to kind of wonder about the salvation or the gospel. And now they have a group of people that are going, that are, um, that are from the Spirit, that are going to deliver God's truth. And so there, there is a, a, a relation back to the Holy Spirit as the authority for these things. He's the one that brought us to one accord. He's given the credit. So in verse uh, 29, it says, the list of things that they're given. And we, we recap this several times, but this morning I want you to kind of hear it in a, a new light so that it moves forward to application. It's not just a list of things that they ought to avoid. It's a see that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood and from what has been strangled, from sexual uh, immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. They, they don't want to lay any further requirements or burdens on them. And these are the specifics of the letter. And so they say things that have been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and sexual immorality. And if you take a look at this, the first part of that relates primarily to false worship or idolatry and and giving your allegiance or your worship to something that is, is false. And then the second part of that has to do with really covenant faithfulness. If you're called to be in a covenant, in the new covenant in Christ with God, Following these things would be a testimony that you are indeed being faithful to that covenant. That is the short list. It doesn't say requirements. The word there is essentials. These are the essentials of what it means to be a Christian, to be included in the covenant. So Christian, living by the word of God, these instructions has to go beyond a worship service, right? Because these things like being strangled and sexual immorality, those things don't happen in a worship service. It's got the, the implications of that are outside of the scope of what it means to gather here, right? And first of all, like, if, if that's true, how would you know if somebody was obeying or disobeying those things unless the scope is greater than simply a, a, a gathering in a worship service? It says, so when they were sent off, they went down and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is the, this is the very first New Testament scripture used in the New Testament right? It's Holy Spirit-inspired word delivered to the church for the purpose of instructing them in life and to build them up in maturity. That is God's word being delivered. And we're told that it is on the word of the apostles and prophets that these things uh, are laid as the foundation for the church to be built up on. And we have both here, apostles, and we're told that Judas and Silas are prophets. And so prophetically speaking here has to do with the ability to the ability to teach authoritatively when there's no scripture there, right? You got to think about how much existent New Testament scripture is there for them to instruct. Well, there's not very much. They have a letter so far with with like four requirements, okay? And because that isn't there, they need a prophetic role. And so they do this and they fill that in the the beginning of the New Testament as it's been laying down. That's That's the role of prophecy here at this moment. And then verse 33 says, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, or I skipped, there we go, 33. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers. So this brings the whole, the whole thing full circle. They, they, it started in Antioch with a group of people not inspired by the Holy Spirit, bringing a wrong message to these people, unsettling their minds. They go up to uh, Jerusalem, they have the council, they write the letter, send back down with people. Everything gets reconciled. There's peace among Antioch and uh, Jerusalem. They share now a, a single truth in the gospel. It's been established, and they send those representatives back to the church that, it, uh, that they started from in peace. 
So this is telling you that the Holy Spirit has done what he's intended to do by his word, to make sure that everybody is uh, on the same playing field. If you want to say it this way, he establishes uh, now a, a true fellowship. Paul, Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch. They're, they're teaching and preaching the word of the Lord and many others also. So the fact of the matter is this. This wasn't all there was to say, but there's fellowship now in communing between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, something that had not previously existed. And when we say fellowship, we mean something like we got together and we hung out and we sipped coffee. So this word is, it literally means communion. It is a, it's, a, it's a knitting together. It's more than friendship. It's, the Greek word is koinonia. You've probably heard it before because we like to put that on, on coffee shops and things like that. But let me just give you a few ways that this word is more commonly translated. Communion, union, partnership, to partake, to participate, community, to communicate, uh, contribution, and to have something in, in common. And so this is what it means to then be in Christ and share fellowship with God and with one another. There's implications to to that. Beyond the fact that when we gather here, we're not mean to each other. Like, that's not fellowship. I let you have the last donut. I like you. We're in fellowship, right? That's, That's not what this means. I want to push this, and I want you to drop anchor by God's word uh, from this definition. Now, MLK famously once said, the most segregated hour in America begins at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning, which brings up uh, two points. One is maybe we're having service too early. I don't know. Maybe you guys would stay awake a little better if it was at 11. But um, here's what I observed about this this quote from uh, Martin Luther King. He identified the symptom, but not the problem. He said that it begins at 11 o'clock. But here's the thing. It's not that suddenly at 1059, crossing the threshold to 11, we begin to do something different than we were doing before. The fact of the matter is that 11 o'clock is just a continuation from 1059 and all the minutes that preceded that. And that's why this is problematic. Nothing is different. It just happens to be the fact that the contradiction becomes apparent. The contradiction that we're gathering around a gospel of unity as a, as a segregated community. Like, do you see the, the contradiction there? It becomes more apparent when we gather as the church to do that. And we've gotten, uh, we've gotten around the fact that this is such a, a glaring contradiction by intellectualizing the truths of Scripture. Oh, those, those are just spiritual truths to know. They don't mean anything in my life. We, we set up the kiddie pool on the deck, and we drop the anchor there. Because that's about the depth that we can have if we just call this our fellowship and the problem being that we're segregated when we come together for a worship service. What MLK exposed was not that we have a problem with racial segregation. That's a symptom. He exposed that we have a problem with gospel segregation. If God's word only fits into certain places and times and situations in your life, then this will be the inevitable outcome. It's a contradiction in gathering around a gospel of unity and the hypocrisy of preaching something that you can know, but it not moving into practice. So what is the depth of the gospel? Where, where is the ocean established? Well, if you went to our, uh, our website right now on the homepage, it says this, if you don't know what our for all, in all, overall. That's, that's, the, that's how far it goes. We're shining the light of Christ for everyone. It's open to anybody that wants to come. 
It's in all things that you can get to. You want to point to that? Yes, Christ is Lord of that. And it's over all things. It's not, there's not places that are secular and places that are sacred. And, and Jesus is Lord over the sacred things and the, and the Christian things and the worship times. But he's not Lord over all of the other things that we look out outside of those. That we seclude them and, and segregate them and call them, well, that doesn't, really, that doesn't really seem to cross the threshold into something that, uh, that should have an implication with the gospel. And that segmentation is how we sort of live our lives. That we call this worship gathering and the time that we spend in fellowship here the, 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 the depth of the kiddie pool. And we call what is that kiddie pool, we say, we say that, well, that's the spiritual life. That's what spiritual knowledge applies to. That's what truth applies to. And we sort of leave all of that then at those doors once you walk out. And then you go into, quote, unquote, the rest of your life. And that's treating Christianity much more like a new outfit than a new being right? It's just something you could put on and you take it off. It's like Mr. Rogers when he comes home and he puts on the house coat and then changes shoes, right? And then when, you, when he leaves, he puts on the work clothes. And here's what this, how this ties to what has happened in Christ and what we're reminded that we should be aware of. The walls of the church have become a new temple. We've, we have erected new walls of the walls that were torn down, and we do this to separate us, our own lives, individually. Well, I have, a, I have parts of my life that um, are spiritual. And, and Christ um, should have authority over those things. And he, and he speaks to those things. And his word applies to those things. But then I have other places that don't seem to really mean anything. And we call those physical, right? And, and we use this to divide from one another. Well, I have a family. And I have a work. And I have other things that I go to. And so church is... Um, the time where I'm in communion with others, but um, then once it's outside of those walls, well, then it's just friendship, right? There's, there's no depth to that. It's not, it's not Christian communion. It's just other people that I'm friends with. And we use it also to, to separate us from the world. But we use it the wrong way, not as a, not as a distinction, and, and a spiritual distinction by the Spirit that was that first slide with the dotted line, right? And the spirit, but we use it to divide sacred and secularly, sacred and secular. And we say everybody in here is sacred and everybody out there is the bad secular people that we have to be afraid of and worried about. But this is exactly what Christ tore down. A physical place where, where everybody had to come to, to, to know who God is, to learn uh, what was true and to know God. The notion that the gospel um, is just a message that saves us from our sins and nothing more is a problem. We say once we're saved, you know, it's our duty to come every week and sort of be reminded of that. But like the, the gospel, how does that apply to, to any place outside of here? And so I, I remind you that anything that has less than 1% of your time, attention, and energy will not have any implications outside of here. Like how can you use that to wield any power in your life? What, what else has less than 1% of your time, attention, and energy and means anything to you. We think that the more time we spend at church or doing churchy things, that, that means that we're extra holy. And that's not true. Suppose you go home and uh, as you arrive, you see that at your house, there's a raging party being thrown. I mean, it's spilling out onto the lawn. Unmentionable things are happening. You walk into your house being desecrated, and you, instead of addressing the situation, you, you avert your eyes, and you crawl to your bedroom and lock yourself in the linen closet to read your Bible. 
right? And you, you don't address anything that's happening in your house. Why would you do that? That's silly, but that's exactly how we treat the church and how we treat our spiritual lives. Well, the, the world's burning down, but that doesn't, that doesn't really matter. The, all this stuff's happening, but we'll just go into our little sacred place and read the Bible because that is the place where Jesus can be Lord. And the truth is, we, we, we sort of look at with that essential, the church, uh, the essential church documentary, and we say, well, the church is under attack. Woe is us. Oh, no, what, what will we do with people outside doing bad things? And so we sort of retreat back into the church as the last stronghold. The location which, which must not be given up, right? It's just like this is the last place that we have to make sure that nobody uh, desecrates. But this makes foolishness of uh, Jesus' promises about overcoming the world. And what he said the church is. And how he said the truth will advance over all of these other things. So this is what's going on in the world. There's a raging party going on. They're burning stuff down. The cops are being called. And we're like, oh, that doesn't matter. We're in the church and we're safe here. And you think that you're safe here, but that eventually permeates into the closet that you have locked yourself into. If you think that you're keeping God safe by erecting walls, because lest he be sullied by looking on all of the dirt and things going on outside, and you're tucking him safely away, protecting the truth of the Bible, lest it be sullied by those who are outside, you have the whole thing exactly inverted. The truth of the Bible is not protected by these walls. If you've erected any walls, they're for your personal protection. In the sense of, I don't want to be embarrassed by this truth. What would people think if why the leading men were those who risked their lives for the sake of the truth? There's no danger if you don't take it to dangerous places. God doesn't need a bodyguard. He's yours. He doesn't need you to protect his truth. If you carry his truth into dangerous places, he's your protection, not the other way around. He has not asked you to hide his word away from all of the risky places out there. In fact, he compels us, impels us, equips us, and tells us, commands us to go into the world and take the truth with us. The stone temple is gone, and the living temple has come in its place. There was a physical barrier, a literal physical barrier with a sign on it that said, on pain of death, do not cross from the Gentile court into the court of the Jews. That was what was in the old temple in Jerusalem. That has been torn down. That's what Jesus takes away and removes because no longer are the nations supposed to come and seek Christ in a single place. He has sent the church, he's building the church out of living stones to go and be in among the nations. That's the inverse. So no longer are we supposed to wait for people to come inside of here. And so we build up false walls and we make scripture useless. We say, well, how does that really apply? How is this truth going to overcome all of the ugly, bad things out there? It's not that big of a problem to have fellowship in a worship service. You can tolerate just about anybody for an hour, right? But if fellowship means more than that and the church is more than that, then we begin to see the scope of the problem and why it's so important that Christ is our unity and nothing else. The church is not just a worship service. It's participation in God himself and with one another. 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What were the first elements of the letter? 
Abstain from things that have been sacrificed to idols. It, don't don't uh, partake in things that have been strangled or blood. That was stuff that was offered in false worship. And here's Paul warning the church, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. That's, that's the communion, the koinonia, right? The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread, right? So there's, there's the unity. We're all united into one thing. So consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So when you came and brought your sacrifice, they would grill part of it on the altar, and you are participating in that sacrifice just like we participate in Christ's sacrifice when we take the bread and the cup. But now he's going to move this to a way to participate in another kind of sacrifice that's not good. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. So he's now talking about false worship again and idolatry and the fact that some food has been sacrificed to idols. Is that food anything? Is there some like weird thing if I, if I eat you know, meat that's been sacrificed to idols that suddenly I'm a pagan because I didn't know it or something. He's saying, no, there's no power in the meat. I imply, though, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons. Idolatry is practicing demonic worship, not to God. I do not want you to be participants. That's the same word, fellowship, koinonia. I don't want you to participate in that. I don't want you to unite yourself with that because the same kind of unity that you think about with you being united to Christ is the same kind of unity you need to think about when you think about what's been offered to idols. You unify your own spiritual self with those things when you participate in those things. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't have union with both. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He's not giving practical advice. He's telling you that there's no mixed, mixed thing. There's no kiddie pool on the deck. It's all or nothing. So when you try to separate those things, you're making a mistake. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So the, the cost of real unity is Christ's own sacrifice, that in his flesh, he breaks all the barriers down. He unites us to one another and God and himself, removes all of the, the hostilities. And so in light of that, we're supposed to live like that's true. Not just when we gather here, but in your whole life, you are a new being, a new creation. You're not the old being with a new sweater, right? That you can put on sometimes when you think it might not get dirty. You are a new being that has to go into the world. And the church is partaking in what the world is offering. We think that we have sort of, you know, insulated ourselves from this. But it's not true. It has infiltrated the church. Now, before, I mean, like, I don't know how many years ago, but, like, this is the inside of a church. We're coming through Pride Month. There's uh, the, the pride flags hung in stained glass inside the church. Here is what represents those who are saying, you can partake of the table of demons and the table of the Lord. It has infiltrated. It's not just outside. That's why you cannot hide in the closet. You cannot treat God like you can have as much or as little as you want of him. Though we do treat him like that. 
you, you will inevitably in, be influenced by those things, and they will infiltrate the church. Idolatry of the world infiltrates our hearts. If you're not aware of the spat that recently has happened at Target, they literally hired a designer for their, their kids' clothing that is an open Satan worshiper. Okay? This is their words, not anybody else's speculation about the situation. So this is the false gospel of Satan about unity and about love and about acceptance. Satan is used as a symbol of passion, of pride, and liberty. He means to you what you need him to mean. Satan is hope. He's compassion, equality, and love. So, of course, Satan loves pronouns, LGBTQ people. That's the Target clothing designer. Saying that, there, there's love and acceptance and equality. In MLK's observation about segregation, we think the way to solve that problem is we hold hands and sing kumbaya, and we rally around some other kind of unity than Christ himself. It's the supposed acceptance and inclusivity, but it's a false diversity. It's a mockery of what true unity actually is because these distinctions aren't rooted in, in God's design. They're a rebellion against God's good design. All of those whatever the alphabet is right now, all of those are a rebellion against God's design for who we are. And so it represents the hatred of God. The world system of reconciling that is to say, well, in spite of those differences, we'll all come together under love and equality. That is a false unity. That's a false gospel. Every area of your life right now is being overrun by false religion. Economics, politics, Sexuality, parenting, family, marriage, recreation, education, entertainment, science. Can you find a place in your life that is not overrun with the false gospel of Satan? We are not to huddle in our sacred mass hoping that will change. The rest of your life is exactly where the truth needs to be taken. Christ is the only source of real unity. All of these other things are false. They're, they're the masks. They're something that you become so that you can be different, and then you can be accepted. It's, 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 it's be different so that you can be accepted, and that's why uh, kids in record numbers are uh, buying into these things, and then their self-worth, their ideas about what the future holds. I, I wish I had the statistic. I had a slide, but it's, it's uh, disheartening, to say the least about what kids are thinking about, how they need to live, what they need to be like to be accepted. And so that's just pure, plain, 100-proof idolatry. Okay? That's idolatry. It's, worship, it's worshiping the false gospel of identity, of, of equality being in, in who I am and what other people say I am. It's, it's, it's holding out a, a, a false uh, hope. And if you look at who the, the, the provider is, of that. It's you. I, I'll rise above these differences and, and be accepting and show love to everybody, but that's not love. That's rebellion, and that is the same kind of rebellion that Adam and Eve engaged in. We will be like God. We will say what is true and false. We will take his place. Jesus is the only one who accomplishes true koinonia. 
And he did this in his own self at the highest cost to accomplish it at the deepest level. It is not something that you can just choose to do or not do, that you can get wrong or right. It is what you are. He accomplishes it at the level of being. So it's consequential then that we don't take this truth and run it backwards through the filter of what the world says that will inevitably pollute our minds about how we should think about what Christ has invited us to. Being Christian is not what you do, it's what you are. Do you stop being something at a moment because you choose to not be that thing anymore? No. That's exactly what the world is preaching. You can be something by choosing it, by believing it, by putting your hope in it, right? And what Christ has done is he says, I'm going to make you a new being, a new creation, and that's what you are forever and always. What's happened in this letter is direction for all of your life. The apostles are not putting up guardrails where God had tore them down. They're not putting up new barriers for uh, the rules, for the laws, that we need to make sure that we don't overstep those, otherwise, lest we not be Christian anymore. What's happened is that God is making merge lanes onto the highway of the Lord. This is, this is how you get onto being right with God, how you keep faithful covenant. This is what it means to not participate in the table of demons. So you cannot separate what is physical and spiritual. You, you have been spiritually awakened, given spiritual life. Eternity is real for you, yet you, here you are in your physical body. In the Romans 1, or excuse me, Romans 12, 1 and 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It doesn't say transform your mind so that your mind's different. It says you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Well, because you're supposed to be offering your body, your whole self, your physical self as a, he says, this is a spiritual sacrifice. This is your true worship. There's any barrier, any segregation that you've put up between the kiddie pool of spiritual life and the rest of your life or what happens with your body or out in the world and spiritual things is, is non-existent. Be transformed, you, yourself, your being, by the renewing of your mind. Why? Because you should offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, your physical being, your coming and going, everything that you engage in. That is your true spiritual act of worship. We are to offer our whole lives into alignment with the gospel and drop anchor off the ship. God's, God's word instructs all of our life and applies to all of our life. That sounds very intangible, I know, right now. I, I, I actually just want to broaden your scope and get you to recognize the problem. So long as what we have to say and hear about God's word only seems to apply to you here, you've erected false barriers in your life. And I think more often than not, we, we do it not because it's, it's true, but because we, we want self, we are afraid. We are afraid of what the world will do to us, hearing what the truth that we believe. But we're called to go and take that out. It's like, it's like keeping all of the water in the tanker truck, the fire engine tanker truck, while the house burns down, lest the water 
get burned by the fire or something, right? And so you just let the whole thing burn down. Well, what, what's, what's left to save? Nothing. It it's, has a purpose. God's truth is, is the double-edged sword, sharper than everything. It will divide. It will divide truth from error, and it will conquer the world. But we must be with courage, willing to take it and apply it all, all through the world and all through our lives. Amen? <laughs> Let me pray for us this morning, and then uh, we'll close in uh, worship.